First Samuel, let's talk about First Samuel. And you should know, even before we think about this first category of authorship, that First Samuel is one book. First Samuel and Second Samuel are one book, is what I meant to say. Uh, this was a whole, a unit, only split into two parts, I think in the third century before Christ, that started to be put into two separate categories with two separate names, First and Second Samuel. But it was put together, it was penned as a whole. So the authorship, as we're going to see, though it's a little different than some of the other authors, discussions of authorship we've had. This regards First and Second Samuel, the rhetorical purpose and strategy of the book, the, the goal, even though we split it up because they're both key timeline books, uh, we'll give it a, a key word, a main concept in both books and key chapters in both books. Uh, really, they're a rhetorical literary whole, and we need to think in those terms. Therefore, we won't go over some of these things like authorship in the next book. But let's talk about uh, the unity of the book and give you a sense of what really even is the theme and the statement regarding the authorship from First Chronicles 29, 29. It says, now the Acts of David, which gives us a sense of where we're going in both First and Second Samuel, is from first to last, are written in the Chronicles of Samuel, the seer. Now, seer was a synonym, roughly a synonym for a prophet, because before you can speak for God, Nabi, the word for Nabi, or word for prophet is Nabi in Hebrew, which is a mouthpiece for God. Before you can have the ability to speak for God, you got to be able to be a recipient of revelation from God. So that's the, the, the focus on seer, a seer, someone who sees God's truth, God's will, and then can relay it. So we've got Samuel the seer in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. So these are used here, giving us a sense of three authors. And this is the way the Talmud has broken it down. And Christian and Jewish tradition has always broken this down. And it makes logical sense because in chapter, chapter 25, we have Samuel dying. So the traditional way to understand the three authors of first and second Samuel are that Samuel penned Samuel first Samuel verses chapters one through 24 and that Nathan and Gad without any further explanation at least in most writings or surveys of the book in antiquity will simply say they together teamed for the rest of what comes from first Samuel 24 all the way through the end of second Samuel so oddly we have three human authors as it relates to this particular book and uh, we can break it up, at least if we're going to follow the tradition and we don't have any greater insight than the patristic fathers and the the early church leaders and the Old Testament rabbis and and scribes. And so we are going to be comfortable, at least I am, saying Samuel, Nathan, and Gad were the authors of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And of course, Samuel's not writing these things after his death. So we've got him in chapters 1 through 24. Does that make sense? Nathan, I should briefly comment on these. Nathan, you might remember, and we'll look at this as we get to it tonight, was the one who was the prophet that was closest to David and was his advisor throughout his reign as king. He was the one, you might remember, was the one who confronted David after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And um, that's where we know his name. Gad uh, is also uh, serving during the time of David. Uh, When David hid in the cave of Adelam, which we'll think through and look at when he's running from Saul, Gad was uh, there telling him to get back uh, to Judah in 1 Samuel 22. And he 
he's also an advisor to David. So Samuel, the seer, Nathan, the prophet, Gad, the seer, those are roughly equivalent words that focus on two different parts of how you are a prophet for God. And these are three prophets who are writing prophets in this case. The main concept of the book, as you know, is monarchy. I'll add this phrase. It's about the monarchy being established in Israel, in particular, when it relates to this very important section of biblical history. It's showing and explaining the transition from a theocracy. The theocracy, as you might remember, is where we started from the establishment of the promise to have a nation that God was going to work in and through, the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants. Uh, He had no king that was established and no king that was appointed. Uh, We simply had a theocracy, God directly dealing with the people of Israel from the time of Abraham, roughly 2000 BC, all the way through the period of the judges, went through the conquest and the exodus, the conquest and the period of the judges for 300 years. And now we're going to get out of that. This book is about the transition ultimately to David. And I hate to uh, minimize the first king of Israel, but really that was just a a bad warm-up to what God was trying to do in setting up the first king in his mind, first in priority and first in time, at least in terms of the legitimacy of what God wanted in the throne to David. So we're talking about going from a theocracy to a monarchy in particular to see David um, established in the throne. This highlights the transitional figure. If we're going to break this into halves, which hasn't been done uh, when it was originally written and studied, but after the third century before Christ, it was studied independently. We're going to say 1 Samuel is going to focus a lot on the transitional figure from the monarch, from the theocracy to the monarchy, and that is Samuel, a very important figure. It describes the first two kings, at least chronologically, the first two kings, Saul and David. King Saul, the first king of Israel, and David, the second king of Israel. And that's all we get through in 1st and 2nd Samuel. That's how 2nd Samuel ends with the death of David. Key chapter is 1st Samuel 8 as we established the first time we were together here on Thursday night in the overview. We laid out all those timeline books, the key foundational books, and we said we need to remember that 1st Samuel 8 is the key chapter in the book of 1st Samuel because that's the book in which Saul is enthroned and crowned as the king. Very simple We've been through this, but that little more detail on where we've been in the past. Time frame may be helpful, and these would be good dates to remember, at least the rounded numbers of these dates, and this will help keep our Old Testament in place. As a matter of fact, by the time we're done with Old Testament survey, I should be able to throw out any familiar Old Testament character, and you should be able to tell me where it fits in the timeline, at least from Abraham forward, and and that would be a good little quiz uh, to have maybe on our last night, and we'll see how you test on that. But to give you a rough and dirty number, let's say 2000 BC. And all these dates are BC, of course, in the Old Testament. I don't take the time to write those letters down if you're new with us. But 2090 was the call of Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, to come up the Mesopotamian Valley and to head over the top of the desert and through Syria and down into what would eventually become the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. As a sojourner, he never received the promise of settling there as we saw in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So 2090. The Exodus, of course, is a number that you should remember, 1445 BC. That is when they finally were released from slavery in Egypt and Moses led them out. 
And of course, the Exodus was supposed to be a quick transition, at least in terms of plan A, the ideal will of God, which of course was not the decreed will of God. It was certainly the prescribed will of God. And that was, you're supposed to come out of Egypt and you're supposed to cross the Red Sea and you're supposed to go to Kadesh Barnea, send in the 12 spies and then take the land. But sending in the 12 spies, they came back and said, no, it's too hard. And so they turned in unbelief, as you remember in the book of Numbers. And how long did they wander in the wilderness? 40 years. So in We don't put this date down, but that's too easy to say the conquest would be 1405. But when we start our book, which is the beginning of 1 Samuel, we're at 1100 B.C. So the birth of Samuel, 1100 B.C., is when this book starts. And though there has been some question, and I touched on it briefly, about two different theories regarding the Exodus, from now on, I mean, there's unanimity in terms of scholarship on the dates, at least, well, for the most part. And there's always someone who's who's argumentative and pugnacious about it, but there's unanimity for the most part in terms of the scholarship of all these dates. So they can be very specific at this point, which by the way, the dating is very hard because no one signed their checks, you know, a thousand years before Christ, you know, uh, 10, you know, 1100 BC. Because So that makes perfect sense. So they were always dating things based on the establishment of kings and dynasties and especially in Mesopotamia and in Egypt. And the times we can start to get very clear as to where the dates are really gets down to astronomical events. And the, the key ones that all the historians love is when you have a uh, an eclipse that was mentioned, like the one we had recently. Uh, once you have that in ancient literature, you can start to zero in on it because we can run back because God is a God of symmetry and order. One of the things that should convict us by looking at nature, seeing the attributes of God in nature, uh, we can go back and calculate exactly when that was. So by the time we're getting here to the 10th and 11th century BC, uh, we have these uh, these eclipses that are designated in history, and we start to zero in really clearly on when all these things took place. And that would be a whole other lecture to talk about the dating uh, and, 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 and being clear about it. Well, there has to be some level of trust unless this be a 30-week lecture. But for 13 weeks, we need to uh, just give you the sense that there are hard markers in the astronomical events that give us these dates very firmly, at least at this point by the 11th century B.C. Birth of Samuel, 1100. Uh, Saul was crowned, and this would be a good date to remember, 1043. This is the beginning of the monarchy. Now, it's not ideal, as I said, because Saul was the people's choice and not God's choice. Nevertheless, in 1 Samuel 8, it's the key chapter. You're going to memorize that. You'll remember that. 1 Samuel 8, first king of Israel. And if you put a date in your mind to that, it should be in your head. Memorize 1043, the beginning of the monarchy. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel, as long as we're studying 1 Samuel, it ends in uh, 1011. So you do a little math on all this. Samuel's 57 years old when he anoints Saul the king. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel covers roughly uh, 90 years, 89 years to be exact, from 1100 to 1011. And that's the time frame of all the things we're going to talk about in the first half of our night as we think through the events, the major characters, and the happenings of the book of 1 Samuel. Good with that? Makes sense? All right. Let's get an outline. And I try to make these outlines as simple as, as possible. Matter of fact, if you want decent outlines, you want to go to one place to get good outlines that are fairly detailed on the Old Testament. And I know we carry it in the bookstore. It's available on Logos. Bible knowledge commentary. Is that what it's called? By Roy Zuck, the editor. Yeah, that's what it is. By Word Publishing. Bible Knowledge Commentary. It comes in two volumes. There's a New, New Testament volume and an Old Testament volume that's two or three times as fat. But in the beginning of every one of those books, there's a fairly detailed outline of all the contents of every single Old Testament book. How many of you have the Bible Knowledge Commentary? Look at you. That's a good one-volume Old Testament commentary. If you want to go up from there, you should go to the Expositor's Bible Commentary by
by Grablin, that will give you, I think, 12 volumes in the Old Testament. But we go from one volume, I think, to 12 volumes in the Old Testament. Outline for the book. Mine are super simple outlines. So here we go. Samuel leads in Israel. We get Samuel on the main stage. Now, he is a major player through most of the book, but he is basically the solo leader. And remember, he's called a, he's the 13th what? He's got a title. I gave it to you in the book we studied two books ago our last book. No, two books ago. Judge. He's a judge. Judge doesn't mean he wore a robe and, and adjudicated you know, disputes, although he did adjudicate disputes. But it means he had that role that the 12 figures in the cycle of judges and judges had. And there was one more. Do you remember who the, the, the 14th one was? Eli. Strangely enough, he's called a judge in the book of 1 Samuel. Nevertheless, he's leading in the role of judge. As we'll see, he's also leading as a priest and a prophet. We've already seen that he's called a seer. So he's a prophet, as we learned from his childhood experience there in, in Shiloh in the tabernacle. So you've got a really powerful person. If we think about Jesus Christ being prophet, priest, and king, you've about got it all with Samuel here, do you not? He's a prophet. He's serving as a priest. He's from the tribe of Levi growing up in the tabernacle. And he's a judge, which is as close as you can get to a king before the, the monarch. Power figure Samuel is. The rest of the book, talk about an easy outline. The rest of the book, 8 through 31, is Saul's reign in Israel. So there's the difference. A, a deliverer or a judge, and we said a good word for you to think about if you're going to define the word judge in the Bible, you'd use the word deliverer. The deliverer that really is delivering the entire downward spiral of the, the period of judges to bring them back to God is Samuel. Samuel is leading and he's a leader, but Saul is reigning, and that's a word now we inject in Israel's history from this point on because we have a king. Now, let's break that down into a few categories, four of them. Saul's ascendancy, he, he rises to the, to the throne. And the reason I thought about the Bible Knowledge Commentary is I stole that word from one of their many titles and breakdowns. I, I like that. He ascended in terms of power and ascended in terms of his, uh, his power, his base, his, his establishment, his legitimacy in the eyes of the people. Of course, he wasn't God's first choice, but that's what you're getting in chapters 8 through 14. Then there's a pivotal chapter in chapter 15. A lot of bad things were starting to, you know, show in the poor character of Saul and his bad judgment. He was relying heavily on Samuel because Samuel was the one who had the wisdom and the smarts and, of course, the insight as a, as a prophet. But chapter 15 is pivotal in, in where he's officially rejected by God as the king. Doesn't mean he leaves the throne. As a matter of fact, now we have the parallel story, which we saw in Chronicles, the entire book of First and Second Samuel, we think he's referring to when he talks about the Chronicles and the lifetime of David. We've got David now rising in ascendancy during the reign of of Saul. Now, he's not the king, and he's not a co-regent, as we will say in the book of Kings and Chronicles when we get there, where two people are reigning at the same time, usually in a dynasty, a father and a son reigning simultaneously. It's not a co-regency, but he's certainly picking up steam, and he's already been established as the king in God's eyes. He's been anointed, but he hasn't ascended the throne. But he is ascending, just like I'm using the word in in, uh, Saul's case, in chapters 8 through 14, by becoming established in the minds of people. Remember, they were saying, you know, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And as a military leader coming out of the period of the judges, that meant a lot. That was the whole point of the deliverer. And certainly that's the reason they wanted a king was to have someone that would go into battle for them. And so David was having a better resume in terms of leadership in Israel. And then we see, as this makes nice symmetrical sense, Saul's demise in the end of the book, chapters 28 through 31. Of course, he dies there in the end of the book as we'll survey here in a minute. So Samuel's leading by himself, as 
a prophet, a priest, and a judge. Saul now rises in the leadership of the country, heavy reliance upon Samuel, and he has a few good chapters, if you will, some decent years, at least in getting the people what they wanted. And then he's rejected. And then David, while he's still on the throne and Saul is losing ground, David is gaining ground. And then Saul dies in the end of the book. And that became a good place to split the book into half, even though it wasn't initially two books. You're following me on all that. All right, let's let's deal with some of these main characters. We'll talk about Samuel. We'll talk about Saul and David as we surveyed the book. Samuel's name is interesting. I don't know. We don't always do this, but sometimes the names are, are interesting. Hannah names him Samuel. L. What did I tell you? Every time you see L at the end of a Hebrew name or a Hebrew word, for that matter, if it's transliterated, it stands for Elohim. Elohim is the most generic and common word for God. Not the most frequently used word. The most frequently used word for God is Yahweh because that's his proper name. But his name, his title is, is Elohim, God. And Shem is the word for name. You, you're used to the word maybe uh, if you study Old Testament, Shema. Shema is here from the statement there in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God is one. The Jewish people call that the Shema because the word in Hebrew starts that Shema. And a lot of people will say Samuel means God hears because she wanted a child. She was infertile. She cried out for a child and God gave her the child. But technically it's the word Shem, which is the word to name. So the literal translation is his name is Elohim, which we're assuming the pronoun there is not Samuel, but God. God's name is God, which is not his proper name, but his title. But it sounds like heard by Elohim, and that's what a lot of your study Bibles, depending on which one you have, might say. Or if you just have a textual Bible with a footnote, a lot of those Bibles like to give you what the names mean, and they'll probably say, some of them will say heard by God. Samuel's name, for what that's worth. Role. His role, of course, is he's the final judge. Now remember the judges, every time you hear the word judge, you think dark season, it's a bad time. It was a spiraling descendancy into just a moral morass. It was a bad period of time. It was the worst. When the guys were heroes, they were ended up sacrificing their daughters, right? I mean, when things were going on in terms of learning about a Levite in the book, you know, they're, you know, he's chopping up his concubine and sending them throughout the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible time. And even the heroes were, were bad characters. So dark season. And all of this is going to change. There's a significant character on the scene. His name is Samuel. And Samuel is the most significant prophet since Moses. And remember, Moses is on the scene in 1445. We're now approaching the first millennium BC. We've got hundreds of years without a significant prophet, without someone coming on the scene and speaking for God, being the Nabi or the spokesperson. If God wants to speak to his people, it was a rare occurrence and he was doing it in the book of Judges occasionally through a supernatural encounter like the angel of the Lord showing up. But in terms of the regular teaching and feeding of the people with the knowledge of God, it was in short supply. But here comes Samuel and he's going to be that person. Now, you know the story, of course. He's from a Levite family, and Elkanah and Hannah, Hannah does not have a child, and I know you're all studying this in men's and women's Bible study, with a rival wife that uh, is never a good idea, and so she has children, and Hannah can't, and so Hannah is crying out to God finally, which took her some time to finally do that, but she's at Shiloh, which was where the ark is, which is interesting. Another key factor in this, we don't itemize or break this out, but the ark is a key factor 
key item of furniture that now takes its place in the book of Samuel. It comes out of obscurity. We don't learn much about what's going on with the ark in Judges. We've got 300 years. Now think about that. Like I said last week, the history of America is shorter than that period of time. That's a long period of time. And we don't have the Ark of the Covenant playing the central role. You had all that regulation and stipulation regarding how you're supposed to worship in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the tent version of the temple. And that was supposed to travel around in the desert. And then as they entered the promised land, you'd think it would play this, this central role as the worship center. Well, it hasn't. And we don't even know where it is. And it shows up in the book of 1 Samuel in a city called Shiloh, which is north of Jerusalem, as you, that's an anachronism because Jerusalem wasn't called Jerusalem quite yet, but wasn't where, it wasn't even occupied by Israel yet, but uh, north of Israel, Shiloh, you had this city where the tabernacle was. And here you have a Levite, Hannah and Elkanah having a child after Hannah's infertility. And she prays at Shiloh, Eli sees her, thinks she's drunk. You remember the story. Basically, he says, you're going to have this child. And God, in essence, promises that child to Hannah and she has the child and she ends up giving him over to the Lord, which is an amazing concept. If you think about you wanting something so badly, you get it, you so recognize it's from God that you do what the Bible has always taught, and that's not going to happen very often in the in this dark period of this moral morass of, of, of judges. She's saying, I'm going to practice the principle of first fruits in the most dramatic way. My kid is a Levite, I'm a Levite, the priests are Levites, Eli is, we're going to take my child, the Levite, and I'm going to give him up to God by faith that God is going to provide more children if my whole heart's desire was to be a mother. What an amazing act of faith from this woman who's bringing this child and giving her to the worship center. So Samuel grows up in the tabernacle at Shiloh, which is both good and bad. It's good because he's there where the word is, the word of God, where at least the priests have some kind of lip service to the word of God, where worship is going on and he can't avoid that encounter with God every day, at least the trappings of God. And yet it's not a very, it's not a place filled with a lot of good role models because Hophni and Phinehas, who are the key characters in, in the family of, of Eli, the sons of Eli, they're, they're bad guys as we, I think, referenced in a sermon a few weeks back on the weekend and they are ripping off God by bending the rules on the sacrifice and packing their freezers, if you will, to stock up their wealth when they really should have been giving things to God in the sacrifices. Of course, they were due a portion of the sacrifices, but they were bending the rules and taking what was not theirs. So imagine Hannah bringing her child, which this is a decent picture. I always, occasionally I bring you pictures, try to give you pictures that are somewhat accurate or at least historical and have some time-tested impact on society. But here's one where you've probably got about the the age of the child that was dropped off. And that would be a heart-wrenching reality as you've uh, just weaned your child and you're giving this child over and uh, you come back once a year and visit with uh, some fresh clothing. As you remember, she brings him some clothes. Well, he's called by God as a child as he's ministering there in Shiloh. And you remember he hears from God and you know the story runs back and forth and he's trying to figure out how, you know, where this voice is coming from. He thinks it's Eli. It's not Eli. And so Eli finally figures this out. It's an odd thing for these priests in this particular period to have any real encounters with God because God had pretty much shut things down in terms of communication with his spiritual leaders. And so he's finally got, wow, this kid, and I'm sure he's comparing him to his own 
children, saying maybe God is speaking to him, go lay down and say, speak, your servant listens. And sure enough, this is God who brings a message to young Samuel. Well, this is the famous picture of him telling Eli that he wanted to know what God had said to him. This is painted back in the 1780s and wasn't a good message, you remember. The message was, you have not restrained your boys from doing evil. You haven't restrained them. I've been doing a lot of uh, interviews on our uh, this book, uh, the book on parenting, and I feel like this is a message, as, as I talk to these, these people about it, radio stations, I did several this week, and I I feel like the concept of restraining your children either has theological obstacles in people's minds or it just seems like too much work for a lot of folks. But here is God saying, I'm going to punish your household. I will not forgive at least the consequences, earthly consequences, of your failure to be a good parent. And so anyway, Samuel lays that on Eli after Eli says, tell me what God said. And basically he's saying, you're not going to have the consequences of all this reversed. And your household is basically rejected in your leadership as a priest in this country is no longer going to happen. So quite a scene, the little boy leading them all to quote Isaiah. Here is a interesting turn of events and God always seems to do that, doesn't he? With the underdog or the weakest or the smallest or from the smallest clan like Gideon when he was chosen to lead against the Midianites. I mean, he's picking now a boy who's not even the son of Eli to become the new prophet for the nation. Just to give you some sense of where this all is, I mentioned that it was all starting in Shiloh here. You can see the circle, can you not? Um, I should have starred Jerusalem. Jerusalem is there, and again, it's a bit of an anachronism. If you look straight down the highway, if you will, about the about level with the uh, what they call the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea as you know it, straight across there. If you just go west from the top of the of the Dead Sea, you've got Jerusalem. So you get a sense of where it is pretty much in the center of, of Israel at this particular point. Well, you have Shiloh here being the place where everything is happening in the narrative of 1 Samuel. And one of the things that happens with Hophni and Phinehas is they decide that, you know, God will be obligated to win our battles if we fight our historic enemies, which, by the way, look here to the left. If you go toward the Mediterranean Sea, which is marked here as the Great Sea, you've got the Philistine territory. You see some cities there, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath. These are all strongholds of the Philistines. Philistines now are the number one geographic enemies to Israel, which really, if you think about where they are in terms of Jerusalem, which is going to become the center of attention here in the books eventually, you're 30, 40 miles away from your arch enemy, your arch enemy that is becoming very skilled in the art of warfare. It's one thing for us to think about North Korea, for instance, in the news every day, but you imagine if North Korea was Mexico, I mean, you put it in close proximity to where you're at. I know they don't have ICBMs or anything, you know, in the ancient world, but that was a scary time to live so close to the arch enemies of the Philistines. So anyway, they're going to go to war and Hophni and Phinehas say, well, I know the way to win this. Let's bring the big magic, I mean, the rabbit's foot out on the shoulders of our warriors and we will have confidence. And it gave the Israelites great confidence when they went to fight against the Philistines. The ark came out, you know, because Hophni and Phinehas had the keys to the church, if you will. They got it. They brought it out. Everyone cheered. The Philistines said, oh no, we're going to lose. They got something, you know, a god has entered the, 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 the armies over there. Well, sure enough, God was not going to be obliged to win a battle simply because they were trusting in his symbol of his presence. God is always going to say, you can toy with the symbols all you want, unless you're seeking me with your heart, I'm, I'm not I'm not playing. So these guys lose the battle. And when they lose the battle, uh, they capture the ark, which was horrific. 
I mean, to have the ark, which was the centerpiece, and now with some kind of at least growing interest in in, in spiritual things, if you will, in the nation, uh, you've got the ark now captured by the Philistines. So they have this battle right here, and uh, I move the circle over there for you. The ark is captured by the uh, Philistines, and they take it all the way down here, down the coastal highway to Ashdod. Uh, Ashdod is where the temple of Dagon is. Dagon shows up in a couple of places. They had a temple of Dagon at, at Bashan. We'll talk about that in the next book, or the end of this book. They had a temple of, of Dagon, one of the Philistine gods here in Ashdod, the big the big one. I mean, right in the center of the hub of the Philistines' territory. And the story, of course, you might remember, is that First Samuel 4, uh, when he brought the news, the news that they had captured the ark, that Israel had fled before the Philistines, there had also been a great defeat among the people. So the armies were lost, and we had to retreat. Your two sons, now they tell Eli, are also dead. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And the ark of God had been captured. That was just too much to take. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man uh, was very old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for 40 years. There's, by the way, where we get the designation that he was termed and understood by the people as a as a judge. This, by the way, remember when Phinehas's wife was pregnant, she was just about to deliver the baby. She has the baby, and she finds out, my father-in-law is dead, my husband is dead, my brother-in-law is dead, they've captured the ark, we lost the battle, and our armies are returning, you know, all bloodied and, and defeated, and she has the baby, and she names him, do you remember what she named him? Ichabod. Ich in Hebrew is uh, the negation, like no. And kabod, there's a word you should know, kabod is the word for glory. And again, the whole point of the ark of the covenant was to be a symbol of the glory of God, the presence of God. Kabod means weight, the weightiness of God, the importance of God. That's why it was so important, this box, to be in an important holy place, not to be brought out to warfare as a rabbit's foot. And the kabod of God now was gone, the glory of God, at least that symbol of it. And of course, it was a much broader statement than that. The glory days of Israel, they had long since been gone, but now the box is gone, that's gone. She has this child, calls him Ichabod. The glory has departed is how usually your, your notes will translate it and tell you what it means. And so Ichabod, you still hear that word today. Matter of fact, I looked that up today and they've used that in several modern things that I'm not hip to, but nevertheless, Ichabod. So what happens? They take the, te- they take the ark to the temple of Dagon. They put it next to Dagon. And do you remember the story? Dagon, the big idol falls over. Keep putting him back up. He falls over again. His hands break off and his head breaks off. And and he's, you know, they're like, oh man, we got big problems. And then something breaks out because of how they respond to it was probably uh, something akin to the bubonic plague with tumors carried by an increase of rats. And usually, as they would say today, in retrospect, transferred by the fleas of rats. And so you had this great horrific epidemic, pandemic break out among the Philistines. And so they, they, they said, we're done with this box. So back to my map. So they take the, the box from the temple of Dagon and they start sending it back to Israel. It ends up at Gath. Things don't go well, well there. That's a Philistine city. They take it up to Ekron, another Philistine city. Things don't go well there. And they finally make their way from Beth Shemesh to the house of Kirith Jerim, which is a Jewish city, and when that happens, everybody's blessed there. So you got the box in the hostile territories, and God curses the people when the box makes its way back because they put it on a cart, put these oxen on it, carried it back to Israel, and by God's providence, finds its way back. And the Israelites said, just leave it there. And it stayed there for years in Kirith Jerim, and everyone was receiving the blessing from God for having the box there. Interesting story. And again, it shows you there was not a central place. It wasn't like, man, that's got to 
to be back in the tabernacle, back where it belongs. Interesting period, which you can see a lot of the the, the overflow of the of the horrific you know scene. What I call it, the morass of morality from the time of the judges. All right, after that scene, now you got the box back in Israel. You've got people now recognizing that you can't use the box the way that they were using the ark as a rabbit's foot. Samuel starts to establish himself in these years as the leader. Samuel, I'm just quoting now from First Samuel seven three, said to all the house of Israel, "Look, it's time for you to return to the Lord." And this is a lot of what his preaching was about. And here's just one snippet of his preaching historically: "Return to the Lord with all your heart. Then put away all your foreign gods, the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only." That was always the problem. People wanted to deal with the forms and the functions and the symbols, like the army carrying the box out into battle. He says about your heart: "Where's your heart at? Where's your mind? Where's your spirit? Where's your heart?" And turn to the God, direct it to the Lord, serve Him, serve Him only, and then He'll deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. The people put away their bales and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. His preaching was becoming very effectual. Samuel judged, there's his word, or the verb showing us that that was his role, leading, delivering. He judged Israel all the days of his life, and he had a circuit here. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. He would go and adjudicate whatever needed to be done. He would preach. He would lead the people. He would turn their hearts toward God. And then he would turn to, when he returned to Ramah, for his home was there in Ramah, that was a base of operations, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So he's serving as a preacher, a prophet. He's leading worship and, and setting up a, a worship center here in his home at Ramah and, and serving as a priest, and he's a prophet and a priest and a, and a leader, a judge, powerful man. All right, let's talk about Saul a little bit. When people read the book of 1 Samuel, they often say, well, even as I've depicted, but they get the wrong idea. Well, God didn't want them to have a king, and they wanted a king, and so they got this bad king, and God had to fix it by giving them a good king. You need to remember that a king was always in God's original plan for the people of Israel. Don't forget that. Jot this reference down. Deuteronomy 17, 15 is just one example of this, and I just jumped into the middle of this, but you could read the whole paragraph that talks about the king, and it goes on to talk about all the things the, all the, things the king should be and do, including writing the scripture down for himself so he has his own personal copy. He's going to act as a scribe for a while to copy the book of the law, which are the first five books of Moses, so he can learn to do them, get it into his heart. But as this passage says, he says to the nation long before it happened, you may indeed set a king over you, plural y'all, whom the Lord your God will choose. And I just pick out that sentence because that was the problem. Though God did technically choose Saul, this was a, a king that they chose. But you need to remember, it wasn't the problem that they had a king. In time, they were going to have a king. God's plan was for them to have a king. The problem was they were going to get the wrong kind of king. And I guess you could argue it was the wrong time for a king because at the right time, they would have been ready to choose the right type of king and for the wrong reason. Now, you got to be careful because I know I easy to summarize the words of 1 Samuel and to put it this way, that they wanted to be like everybody else. And that's true. They did. But even in Deuteronomy, it says, I know all the other nations are going to have kings and you should have a king and you should do what you do in your land with a king on a throne. It's just got to be the king that I choose and the king that I want. So it wasn't just that they had the, the, the concept of saying, well, we're going to be like the other nations. We're a big nation now and big nations have kings. It was that their motive was wrong. And I think it's hinted to in this passage. It starts with, and I didn't add this before the ellipsis, but to be like other nations. Okay. That's not the problem necessarily, but it's what you want. He says, we want our king to judge us. We need a leader and we want it to be a king. That's a leader. We don't want this judges and we don't want these priests and these prophets. We want the regal king 
training to be that leader, which of course God knew that the reason he wants priests and prophets to be the leaders is because he wants to see that God himself is mediating through these prophets and priests. And and it's not like the other nations where you have the the autocratic and despotic and speaking the rules and and that's all there is, this power vested in a person that doesn't have that pass-through of I'm mediating God's information and I'm mediating God's leadership. And here's probably the worst part of their request and to go out before us and fight our battles. We know we can't use the Ark of the Covenant. We've learned our lesson there. Uh, But really what we want is a military guy. And I know that we have some pretty, you know, some pretty tough judges throughout the last three, 350 years at this point, but we want a typical monarch who's going to have a standing army, who's going to go and lead us out in battle. This showed, I think, a lack of their faith in the fact that not only God was going to be their leader, mediated through the priests and the prophets, but you know what? When it came to warfare, I'll take care of you. And I think that shows me that maybe this was the wrong time for the king. It certainly was for the wrong reason. And I know that because the response was when Samuel was displeased, and we're never told exactly why he's displeased, but he's displeased and he goes to God and God says negatively, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So we know that God's commentary on this particular choice of a king, which I think would be the wrong time for a king and certainly the wrong reason for a king, he's saying whatever their stated reasons are, which were want to be like everyone else, We need someone to lead us that's a king, not a prophet or a priest. And we need someone to fight our battles. God's saying that's a rejection of me. So you have to work backwards in that, thinking it through devotionally to say something's wrong with why they want this, not that they want it because it, a king, was promised. So God does the technical picking, but you've got to realize that the king that he picked was exactly what they wanted. And you know, the descriptions of Saul give us a sense of that. He's head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of his height, his appearance. He's described as this handsome, big, large, strong, tall Israelite, and he's exactly what they want. And as you see in this picture, and Samuel's standing up on a platform, or else Saul should be, if this is going to be accurate, a lot taller than Samuel, but he's pouring the oil over his head. Now remember back in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, you had the description of an anointing oil. And that anointing oil was used in the offices of Israel. You anointed the priests. You saw later, and we, we saw this in, in the middle monarchy with Elijah and Elisha, they anointed the prophets, which wasn't as frequent or as recorded as often as the priests. And then you have, starting with this book, the anointing of a king. The anointing oil was like perfume. It was made with certain spices that you couldn't replicate. It was a kind of unique ingredient uh, or or, um, recipe, if you will, that you had to follow exactly that smelled a certain way, smelled good. It was unique and it could only be made by the Levites. And so the Levite, Samuel, the priest and the prophet, makes this and comes and pours it on Saul as the choice of the people that God is, though, picking out. Here's your guy, exactly what you want. Mashach in Hebrew, mashach is the word for the verb to to anoint. And the word anoint, I wish we didn't use the word anoint because it doesn't mean much in our minds. It goes to some you know, theological context that rarely is accurate. But to anoint, mashach means to pour or to uh, pour is the best definition, to pour something on you. And that's what you see in the picture here. Mashiach is, is the one who's been poured upon. Mashiach is transliterated in the Old Testament to Messiah. So when someone says Messiah, you could technically say a Messiah is someone who's had the oil poured upon them. In the Israeli context, it was because 
you're a prophet or you're a priest, or in this case now, starting with 1 Samuel chapter 8, you're now a king if you're duly poured upon with this special, specially prepared oil. So, by the way, and if you turn that into Greek, if you Hellenize that word from Hebrew to Greek, then you get what word? Transliterate it for me. What is it? Starts with a C. C-H-R-I-S-T. What is it? Christ. Very good. Mashiach, the one poured upon. Mashach, to pour upon. We know the word is Messiah as we transliterate it. If you were to say that in Greek, you would say Christos and or Christos, Christos. And if you transliterate that, you get the word Christ. We call him Jesus, Joshua, the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one. And Christ, as the book of Hebrews goes to great pains to tell us, is both the prophet, priest, and king. So here we have the kingly office now being established. You could have a prophet from any tribe. You could have a priest only from Levi. And within a matter of minutes here tonight, we'll see that eventually, really, if you're going to have a king, the only kind of king you can have is one that's coming from Judah. Eventually, we'll see that promised to David. So Saul's off to a start that is pretty regal and he wins battles and God is with him. He even prophesies, which is an interesting statement. He ends up showing that God is with him because he's been duly authorized by Samuel. And he does something that the people recognize as being prophetic, that God is speaking through him as well. Not in the in the sense of being a prophet in, in, as, an, as serving in the office of prophet, but at least God is somehow testifying to the people that he is God's man for the job. The problem is he is pretty self-willed. He's pretty weak in character. He looks good on the outside, but he's not a man of integrity, patience, faithfulness, or strength. He's unfortunately a weak-hearted guy. And there's two episodes in his life that make that crystal clear. Uh, one of them is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, when Saul was called on by Samuel to wait for a week before he engaged in this battle, and he was supposed to wait for Samuel to show up to engage in the sacrifice. Of course, Samuel's a Levite. He has the role of priest and prophet, so he could come as a priest and sacrifice these animals. Well, Saul is waiting. He's very impatient. And he ends up assuming the priestly role, which was his problem, at least in part. Because even David, at one point, we see engage in that priestly role. But we understand at least that he was told to wait. Samuel was only to engage in this. And Samuel said, wait till I get back and I'll do it. Well, in front of all the people, he ends up taking on the priestly role and acting like a priest. And he sacrifices the animals before they go into war. Well, just as he's finished doing that, and all of that scene plays out in front of the people, Samuel shows up and he says, to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. And he commanded you through me, by the way, as Samuel was saying. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, which is an interesting study in God's sovereignty. Here was the problem. We knew from the beginning he wasn't God's choice. He was man's choice. And yet Samuel says, listen, here you were in a position, humanly speaking, had you done what I asked you to do, God would have established your kingdom and you would have continued on as a king with a dynasty forever. But now your kingdom will not continue, shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's the problem. Your character is not what it ought to be. Which, by the way, was a phrase that you can trace back almost a thousand years before this in extra-biblical writings regarding foreign nations, talking about they want leaders and monarchs who lead them that are after the heart of their gods. In other words, they want a leader that reflects the values of their religious system. And so here's God himself saying, that's what we're going to have here. The 
real, true, and living God is going to put a man in the office that's going to be an extension of what I want. Not that he's perfect, as we know and as we'll see tonight. But the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people. And even that statement, that's a great statement. The concept of a ruling monarch as an absolute authority was not the way God introduces the monarchy through the man of his choice, David. He's called a prince. There's a, you want to talk co-regency, there's a co-regency in God's leadership over the people of Israel. I want the king to be my man so that I can lead you through him. He's the prince. I'll be your king. Just that's great, subtle way for him to express what he really had in mind here. Because you've not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So that was one problem. The other problem showed up in 1 Samuel 15. Two chapters later, he's told to kill the Amalekites, which goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, by the way, when God said, when you get there to the promised land, the Amalekites had a long and hostile history with with Israel. And I know that God in his providence knew his sovereignty that they would degenerate to a place of needing extermination. So much like with the Canaanites, he says to Samuel, go tell Saul to exterminate the Amalekites. And so he was supposed to go out and do that. But it says in verse number eight of first Samuel 15, he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, took him alive, which they often did, by the way, to humiliate them. As we'll see elsewhere in biblical history, sometimes just to cut off their thumbs, cut off their toes, put them under the table, have them eat in humility, you know, like a slave scrounging for food. This was something they did for their own glory, their own vain glory, which Saul was known for, you know, setting up monuments to himself and so forth in Israel. Nevertheless, he took the king alive. He was devoted to destruction, which is the phrase that is used in the Bible for we don't want any of it, any of these people to live. He devoted all the destruction, the people, but not the king. The king, of course, was part of the people and who God wanted destroyed. But he killed all the rest of them with the edge of the sword, he and his people, his army. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs. Everything that was breathing was supposed to be destroyed. And here God says, do it. And Saul says, no, I want to keep the best of these things for myself. I want what the, the what is good. Good for my re- resume. I got the king. Now I can humiliate and all the stuff. That's going to make me rich. Just the good stuff, of course. The best calf, the best oxen. And he wouldn't utterly destroy him. All that was despised and worthless, which is easy, right? Might as well destroy that. He devoted to destruction. So that was a bad decision on Saul's part. And I said, if you remember in the outline... The subpoint to chapter or the second half of the book, when Saul is reigning, the pivotal chapter, chapter fifteen, because at this point he's officially rejected as the king. Now he's already on his way to that. After the situation with him assuming the priestly duties and expressly disobeying Samuel, now he's sacrificing not only sacrificing, but now he's uh, disobeying God as, as to what he's called to do in battle. So in this situation, it's very interesting, in chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, he is repentant. At least he says he is, and he says, I want to be pardoned. And he grabs, and it's hard to see in this famous painting here, but he grabs the, uh, the robe of Samuel, and Samuel turns and, to go, and it tears his robe, which is never a good thing, no matter who you are. And Samuel says, just like you tore my robe, the kingdom has been torn out of your hands and he's going to give it to the man after his own heart, one of his own choosing. And 
I should probably read that. It's a great section there. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Let's just be honest with you here, Saul. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. Not going to change his mind for he's not a man that he should have regret. He's not going to change his opinion. You're done forever rejected from the authorized and blessed position of a leader. Doesn't mean he doesn't lead. He's going to lead for several more chapters until the end of the book. First Samuel, that is. But his ministry is done. His leadership is done. So that introduces us to David. Let's talk about David a little bit. Of course, as I've already said, he's God's choice. This is the one that God wanted. Chapter 16, when Samuel's like, oh, it's terrible that Saul is rejected. The Lord says to Samuel, which he says to a lot of people in the Bible who are struck with grief, a lot of times you have your mourning, you have your grief, it's time to stop grieving, it's time to start working. Like at AI, do you remember I mentioned that last time? AI, they were struggling over the fact that they lost this battle and they're all crying and moaning and Joshua's crying out and God says, stop your crying and it's time for you to start working at finding out who did this and dealing with the sin and moving on. Time to go back out to battle and get it right. Same kind of thing here. Samuel is frustrated. And he says, how long are you going to grieve over him? I've rejected him. Let's move on now. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Which is interesting, too, because you know where Elkanah and Hannah were from? They were Bethlehemites. They were Ephraimites. They came from a a part of the kingdom. A lot of connections there. We'll talk about when we get around to it. He's provided a king for himself among his sons. And perhaps you remember the story, all the brothers, Jesse has this big banquet and and reception for Samuel, the holy man, the seer. And he brings all of his sons up because he says, I'm here to choose a king. And he has none of his sons that are accepted. And in the middle of all this, when Samuel's getting excited because he's seeing some guys that look like a good replacement for Saul, God says that famous line, you know, man looks at the outward appearance. It's God that looks at the heart. That was the whole point of this, to have the right kind of leader is to have the the right kind of heart. And that's what I'm looking for. And so he ends up picking the runt of the family who is uh, David, who wasn't even at the party. And this painting, I think, depicts it well, because he's not even dressed to have a meal with, with Samuel. He's coming from the field because he was watching after the sheep. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Verse 12 says, and he sent, he brought him in, David. Now he was ruddy, had that red appearance. And in a culture, by the way, where the Jewish guys had the darker complexion, to have that ruddy complexion, that reddish complexion was more unique. And he had eyes that were attractive, beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. But he was still a runt and not even invited to the dinner. That's my commentary. It's not in the Bible that way. So he says, God says to Samuel, that's the guy. Arise, anoint him. For this is, this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him. So in chapter 16, we have the anointing of a brand new king. And as I often try to point out, yet he doesn't ascend the throne yet. There's a distinction and a difference and a gap between when God says, this is my new king, and yet he's not on the throne. From the anointing till you get to the coronation and the ascendancy of the throne, you've got many, many years, as we'll see. And yet, in God's mind, I've already picked a new leader. Just like today, God's picked a new king. It's his own son. By virtue of who he is and what he's done, he is the Lord of lords, king of kings, and he's in charge. Right now, though, the world doesn't care. Just like the world didn't care then in Israel that David was the king, only a few people cared and knew it. Right after this, David gets enlisted to go to the palace and work for Saul. What's interesting is later, he needs to find out who he is. So he wasn't a key player. He was a background figure. It's 
one of the reasons I like this Rembrandt of David before King Saul, because he's in the shadows. His face isn't even, you know, looking up. He's just back there playing music for the king. And the king was troubled, as you might remember, and had several uh, problems. Of course, he's dealing with guilt and rejection, and he's uh, not a man of character, but he had a lot of power. Nevertheless, David is in the throne. He has an entrance into the leadership and the, and the palace where Saul is leading. Well, the next chapter gives us the scene that makes him famous. He goes out bringing supplies to his brothers who are there in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines, the classic enemy of Israel in these two books. And he ends up with a slingshot taking him down, as you all know, and cuts off his head, which was the major trophy of victory in the ancient world against a king or a leader, in this case their champion, as they called him, their best hand-to-hand combat fighter. And he cuts off his head and uh, becomes the one, as it says even in chapter 17 there, David now becomes the one who is hailed as great. And he picks up a reputation very quickly. Remember the thing about God's own heart. The thing that made this a good expression of that heart of God was that he felt indignant about the disgrace brought upon God. I shot that little video that the pastors had asked me to shoot yesterday about groaning. The concept of us having that kind of jealousy for God's honor in a world that's full of sin ought to be something that characterizes a person, a man or a woman, after God's own heart. You ought to have a sense in which the sin in this world doesn't leave you passive or callous, but it frustrates you. As it says in Psalm 119, that you have that sense of indignation over the sin in the world, the people that forsake God's law. Or as it says in Psalm 15, the one in whose eyes, a godly person, whose eyes a reprobate is despised. And David could not handle the mocking of God by Goliath, their champion. And it's one of the reasons he was willing and zealous, like Phinehas was, to go and make God's authority, have it, his, his honor defended. And so he went out and did that uh, as a shepherd boy with some experience in killing some big animals. And he killed a big animal that day in the name of God, and he became famous. Jonathan that day, the son of the king, uh, they became intertwined as friends. Well, that started many, many chapters of David running from King Saul. He uh, now goes back as a musician to the palace, but this time the envy of King Saul is reaching a new height. As I said, they're saying constantly, and they're starting to hear it, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, and when he heard that, he said, what more could this man have? He's got the reputation, but the kingdom. He's going to take the kingdom from me. So he sought to kill him. And if you were to think about all the biblical examples in the text, starting in this chapter of running from Saul, that is what we have. We have David living on the fringes of society while Saul, who has all the power, and all the armies behind him is running. If you've been to Israel with us or if you're going this next time that we go, we usually go to En Gedi there, which I've circled, which is one of the hiding places of David where God refreshed him. And it's great, one of the best stops I think that we have outside of the old city where we go uh, the afternoon out there to the Dead Sea. But this is the kind of life that he had, moving from one little place to hide out to the next. Uh, You might remember that scene where he's in the cave. Well, both of these, he's in a cave. He's in a cave hiding and twice he has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. And this is the kind of man he is, and God's trying to show what kind of man he wants on the throne, and and that is that he honors the position even though he doesn't like the person, and even though the person is hostile toward him. And twice he ends up sparing his life, even though one time in cutting off the edge of his cloak, he felt 
convicted in his heart over that, that he shouldn't even have done that because it was a disgrace to the king. You might remember he ends up in a place called Adelum. And I often quote this when I talk about being the underdogs following the real king when the rest of the world's following the king they think is the king, but he's not the king. And in our day, where the God of this world is Satan leading all the stuff that goes on in Hollywood and in popular culture and in the university classrooms, here we're following Christ and his word. We're the outcasts. And that scene of him in Adelum where 400 people that are in debt and they're discontented and they're disgruntled, they all make David their leader. If I don't think we have ever gone there, but if you were to go there, picture of the cave of Adelum where they hung out. This place, by the way, as they've researched it, I mean, easily can fit the 400 people that are discussed in 2 Samuel 22 and is way out there in the crags of the rock. So David was there. Here's how the text puts it. Those who were in distress, those who were in debt, anyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered to him and David became the commander over them and they're with him about 400 men. That is where we're living right now between the the anointing of the king. Christ has earned the crown, but he hasn't yet taken his power and begun to reign. One more thing just to circle back on Saul here as we wrap up the book. And though I didn't have a section for this, letter G was Saul's life. But after the rise and ascendancy of David at the end, I said it was Saul's demise. So think back into that section. Samuel dies. Saul is going into battle. And as Saul goes into battle against the Philistines one more time, up this time, he's up in the northern region, and uh, he goes to the Witch of Endor. Of course, the witches, witches and, and the mediums and the necromancers had all been outlawed, and yet they were out there in the fringes and in the shadows uh, exercising their uh, connery, their duping of people out of money, which is, I think, clear in this text, because when she calls up Samuel, which is what Saul wants as he's undercover in a disguise, he shows up in this uh, seance and, and freaks the Witch of Endor out. She didn't expect it to happen, which is what she's paid to do, and yet it shocked her. And Saul's so stupid, I guess, he expected it and it happened. And so now he's having a conversation with Samuel, who had died, and Samuel says, uh, you're going to die tomorrow. And so sure enough, he goes into battle on the mountain of Gilboa, Mount Gilboa it's called, which is a pretty impressive mountain. And on that hilltop, he and his sons fight. And if you remember the story, I'm sure it wasn't quite as crowded as this, but nevertheless, he knew the army was upon him. He ends up committing suicide in disgrace. I even read one commentary that saw this as a good thing as some, I don't know, ancient act of euthanasia. But though he said he didn't want to be taunted and didn't want to be abused and didn't want to be tortured, uh, this is a fitting end for a very... uh, disgraceful season of his life and he ends up killing himself. Now in the beginning of 2 Samuel, there's a claim that someone else, the Amalekite, killed him, but he didn't kill him. He was lying to get a, a reward. This text chronicles, that should be clear to us in the cross-references that he killed himself. Mount Gilboa, I think the last time we were there, and I forget who I was there with, I think Pete was there with me. We were leading a big tour there. We had lunch on Mount Gilboa before we left, and uh, they put a new thing up on Mount Gilboa that we got to see from a distance at least, and that is, it's a ski slope now. They have fake snow up on Mount Gilboa. So you're not thinking about Saul when you're up there these days, but they have some phony snow or whatever it is. It's not really snow, but it looks like snow and you can go skiing now on Mount Gilboa. I just thought I'd throw that in for you. Second Samuel, back of the page. Main concept is David. That's the key word. And of course, you know that because we memorized that the first week. I want to add a little phrase to that. It would be all about his kingly reign. You're introduced to David and the rise of David. Really, it's about Samuel, the pivotal character, bringing us David with this little 
little detour of Saul. Now we get the second book of Samuel, which is all about his reign. Of course, remembering it was all one book at one time. The dates for that, we don't need to go over them again, but if you want the specific dates, we're at 1011. That's when Saul died to 971. It's not smooth sailing that whole time, but certainly that is the time frame for David's life. Key chapter, as we memorized, was 1 Samuel 7. And as we said that first week, we said that is God's covenant with David. If you want to memorize one chapter in 2 Samuel 7 or the reference to it, it should be 2 Samuel 7 to remember if you think 2 Samuel, think chapter 7, that's God's covenant with David. Simple outline for the book. David reigns over Judah for the first four chapters, which is the southern region of Israel, as we'll see on a map real quick. And And then David reigns over all of Israel, chapters 5 through 24. If you want a more detailed breakdown, I told you where to find it. David's reign over Judah, David's reign over all of Israel, which should tell you it's not smooth sailing because he didn't become the king over all the territory that Saul was the king of. So even that, you think, okay, we're ready to get started. And he doesn't get started leading the way that you and I would have planned it out. God makes him uh, go through several bumps before he gets there. The problem was there was basically a civil war taking place, letter D. David was the rightful king. Now, he was the rightful king from the time he was anointed, and yet there was a big obstacle in the way, King Saul. Now, David is the rightful king with King Saul dead, and he's still being opposed, this time by Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is Saul's son, and he now has taken leadership over the north. And that's because Abner, who was Saul's right-hand man, his commander, ended up backing Ishbosheth. And it wasn't until he was dead, along with Ishbosheth, that that whole thing ended. Seven years of turmoil. As you saw in the breakdown of the book, David could only rule over the southern section of Israel because we had the descendants and loyalists to Saul still trying to hold on to a dynasty, which, of course, God had promised, you're not going to have a dynasty. Your lineage is not going to be established. Had you obeyed me, I would have established your kingdom. That was God's promise to him. Though in his ultimate plan, it was never going to happen. But humanly speaking, all he had to do was obey me, but he didn't. God knew he wouldn't, so he had seven years of turmoil. During this period of time, though, David is slowly increasing his power. He's leading with integrity. He's leading with uh, a kind of uh, blessing upon his life. As it says in Nehemiah, the good hand of God was upon him in many ways, and it became more and more known to people. And the north ends up conceding with the death of some key players. Now, this might be a good time for us to keep our terms straight, because you can't even get into the book of any book. I mean, pick like the book of Isaiah without seeing words like Ephraim. And you have to know Ephraim is a shorthand for the north. Or we'll talk about often the northern tribes. We'll talk about the 10 tribes. All of that is referring to everything north of Ephraim or everything north of, of Judah. That is the northern tribes called Ephraim. Benjamin is really a dividing line. Judah is everything south. Now the kingdom's going to split, as I told you in the first night. So we're going to have this division in the future. We're getting a little preview of it now when David is struggling to become the leader over all of the United Kingdom. Now here's another problem, and I should make this clear because the terminology is important. And that is that when I say the word Israel, I could be referring to, and I'm saying that because the Bible uses the word Israel, sometimes referring to the whole of Israel, north and south. Sometimes it uses the word Israel just to talk about the north. When the context is Israel and Judah, then we know we're talking about north and south. If it just says Israel, depending on the context, we may be talking about the whole thing. And that is a little confusing. But I'm warning you that that's the way it's done and the way it's referred to. So now we know. And again, look at the Philistines. Look at how much territory there on the west coast of the Mediterranean. I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is tough. And David's going to solve all that. But right now we have this division and he's only ruling down south in Judah. 
from Hebron primarily, but that's all going to change. The city of Jerusalem, because he's going to take a new capital. After the seven years of basic struggle and civil war take place, David is going to become the king over the whole thing. When the north concedes and basically says, okay, we see the value of a unified nation, David takes a new capital, the city of Jerusalem. Now, on a lot of maps, you'll see the word Jerusalem, but before David takes it, it was known as the Jebusite city, which was a Canaanite city. It was one of those strongholds that was there, as it said in Joshua, that they didn't clear out. And they didn't clear out, and it became a real thorn in their side, even in, let's use the word of the Bible, because they didn't clear out all the Canaanites. Well, Jebus, or the Jebusite city, was one of those. There's a lot of words for this, and we're going to learn more about Jerusalem in other books as we move forward, but at least at this point, you'll even see it in the book of Second Samuel, the word Zion. Zion was the eastern ridge of the city. It was a physical part of it. It was a mount, if you want to call it a mountain. It's not really a mountain, a hill, the mountain or the ridge of Zion. It's used that way as a geographical term. It drops out of usage for the most part as a geographical term term, and becomes the idealized word for Jerusalem as a whole. An idealized term, and I mean that almost as a consistently eschatological description of the future Jerusalem that's coming, that's based on the Davidic covenant, as we're about to see. But you need to know, you'll see the word Zion. If you see Zion, depending on where you're at in biblical history, it could mean the, the idealized city of God, or it could mean the eastern ridge in Jerusalem, or it will be talking about the future coming kingdom, Zion. You'll see it a lot in the poetic sections of the prophets. It's captured by David, and it's called then the city of David. Now that's confusing. Confusing because when you read Luke 2, this Christmas, I'm sure you'll hear it. It's always in our play. Some kid will read from memory Psalm 2, and it'll say, born to you this day in the city of David is Christ the Lord. What city are they talking about there? Bethlehem, obviously. Well, Bethlehem is called the city of David and is the city of David because that's where he's from. But this becomes the city of David and is called the city of David. Same title, different reference. The context is going to tell you the difference. Usually the city of David is referring to the city of Jerusalem because he basically founded it when he took it over and finally routed the Jebusites, the Canaanites who lived there in the city of Jebus. All right, I already just said that. Bethlehem is also known as the city of David. Now, if you go there, and I hope you do, you should go to to Israel and Jerusalem. You need to know, when we talk about the city of David in the time of David, it was a very small walled city. This was the stronghold of the Jebusites. That's the northern end outside the city walls. At the top was a citadel. And this is all I say the top because you're rising in elevation as you go from left to right. Really, we're looking here across the city of David, You're looking northwest right here. And if you keep climbing up to the right, then you're going to start to get into the modern city. This will help you. See those walls right there? Those are the Turkish walls of the current city. When you go to Jerusalem, I know it looks like it's from Old Testament times, but they're not. But they look like ancient city walls, and they are ancient by our standards. And so you see that there? Now, the walls I showed you here, that's all south of the current walls. As a matter of fact, if you might remember, uh, the last time I took a crew there from our church, we have to, outside, the, there's a big street that goes along the south where it says Valley Gate. All of that there in the, the, of the south, southern wall, it's like where the southern steps are. I usually teach from that and we have a little meeting there. You have to cross the street, the really busy street there, to get into another area that's full of homes and houses. If you're going to go into Hezekiah's Tunnel, for instance. Now, smile at me if you've been to Hezekiah's Tunnel and you remember that. You've got to go south of, of that. Well, that's where Jerusalem was then. Not within the old city walls now. Then it was later expanded. Really, by the end of the book, we're starting to expand up north, up the hill, to get into the area that we have later. By the time the, the kings come around, and we'll talk about this as we get to it. So that little sketch of the walls, that's the walls that exist there in the old city today. 
This is the city of the Jebusites. This is the city that David took. It's all south of the walls today. If you want more of a look of what we've got later when Solomon's expanded the city and built the temple, can you see to the right there where it says City of David? That's all outside the city walls today. And you can see the Mount of Olives off. Now we're looking northeast across the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Yeah, there's the city of David. I put a circle around it. That's the city of David. You see, it's just a bunch of houses today. Now, the authority of antiquities still has a place there where we go and we get in Hezekiah's tunnel and we go through it because Hezekiah's tunnel that goes into the city goes into the city of the old city, the city of David, the southern part, which is not even a part of the old city today. All right, come to Israel with us and it'll make more sense. The old city. That's the Jebusite city. And David set up his capital there. All right, God makes a covenant in chapter, what chapter? Seven, Second Samuel 7. What is the covenant? Well, it's filled with two things. Promises, well, it's filled with one thing, promises. The second thing we're going to write down is the implication to those promises. But let's just go through this real quickly. Four basic things. He promises them a great name, Second Samuel 7. This is all being mediated through Nathan, by the way. Nathan the prophet gives him this promise. Remember, do you remember what, what started this? He wanted to build the temple. He's looking at his house. If you go back to this picture here, at the top is his palace. And he's thinking, there's no place for the ark. He brought the ark into the city, but I want to build a house, a big palace. Well, Nathan goes, sure, why not? Do it. Do whatever's in your heart. Things are going well for you. God says to Nathan, no, I'm going to have his son build the temple, primarily because he's known as a warrior. I'd like a man of peace to build the temple. But anyway, so he said, but I got a promise to make him. And the promise is this, you're going to be great. You're going to have great fame. And he says, you're going to have a land. You're going to have a place. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them, listen to these words, so that they may dwell in their own place. Couldn't be clearer than that. Second Samuel 7, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them there that they may dwell in their own place. Well, everyone knew that from the uh, Abrahamic covenant, but he's reiterating that aspect of the land. He says, you're going to have rest and you'll be disturbed no more. Violent men shall not afflict you anymore. As formerly from the time I appointed the judges over my people, no, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies. So now we got a promise of rest. And then a house. By a house, he means a dynasty. There's going to be people coming from your line that are going to sit on that throne. You're going to have a kingdom. Listen to how it's written. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. They shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. Now it starts to sound singular. And he shall build a house for my name. That's a little confusing, but now he's talking about his original son, Solomon, who's going to build that house that you wanted to build that I'm not going to let you build. Then he talks about the fact that I'm going to establish the throne, now he's speaking of his descendants, of his kingdom forever. I will be to him like a father. He shall be like a son to me. The promise of the house is a kingdom, a throne, a dynasty. At the end of it, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Big promises. This is referred to throughout the scripture, but the implications we need to make is this, and it's very clear, I think, for most people to realize. Every rabbi saw it. Every prophet saw it. The prophet said, there's a son of David that's coming. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus keeps calling himself a son of David. They say he's the son of David. Why? Because there's an eternal son, an ultimate king that's going to come. Of course, he's going to be one that's going to usher in all this peace. This is the expectation of John the Baptist when he knew that Jesus was the, the son of David, the Messiah. So you need an eternal son if he's going to rule forever. How does one person rule forever? Got to have some kind of something beyond the mortal going on. Of course, when you talk about the land and the people, we got to have Israel preserved as a nation which most people wrote off 150 years ago, we were thinking, oh yeah, the Jews as a nation are are done. And yet this, if you read it and you take it normally, we need Israel preserved as a nation. 
and the real estate becomes essential. Over and over in the Davidic covenant, reflecting the Palestinian covenant, if you want to call it that, the land covenant in Deuteronomy, and the Abrahamic covenant, it keeps coming back to land, 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 the land that I'm going to give you. And he makes it very specific as Solomon begins to establish the borders after his father David expanded the borders. The real estate becomes essential in a time of lasting peace, which we've never seen in the Old Testament. So you start to see these things look beyond just whatever was going to happen with Solomon, Rehoboam, or any of his kids. You've got things that are going to need to happen forever with someone eternal. It's obviously a messianic Christological promise implications. Don't have a lot of time to go into that. David has a lot of troubles, as you know. Just real quickly, I'll remind you of Uzzah being struck dead. Now, this is in chapter 6. David, in 2 Samuel 6, is moving the ark to the new city, Jerusalem, the old Jebusite city. And Uzzah reaches out to steady the cart and gets killed by God. And David gets mad at God. But this is one of his reminders in training David. You've got to take the word of God seriously. The Bible said... You are supposed to transport the cart in a particular way. It has rings on it, so you put poles through it, and you walk with this. You don't put it on a cart. David was feeling good, and so were the people, because he put it on a new cart. I don't care what kind of cart you, you got it in. You can put it in an Escalade if you want. You're not supposed to transport it that way. You're supposed to put it on, a, on, on poles over your shoulder. And so one sin of doing it wrong led to another sin of reaching out and touching it, and he was killed. And David learned from that. David's trouble, I don't know, this view is as good as any, I suppose, of thinking through his problem with Bathsheba and Uriah. He's on his house, his palace top when he should have been out to war. At least it starts with that statement of the kings are usually out to war at this particular time, but he stays home. And uh, as many have preached, the idle hands are a devil's workshop. So he is chilling out when he should have been working and he sees Bathsheba and you know the story. He impregnates her. He tries to cover it up. He tries to bring Uriah home from the battlefield. He's a more noble man than David is. He won't even go in and sleep with his wife and have, you know, meals in his house because his comrades are out on the front lines fighting. So he ends up having to kill him, having to, only in his sin he has to. He could have confessed and repented. And so now he's a murderer and an adulterer. God says the baby's going to die and there's going to be rebellion in your family from this point on, which starts a terrible cascading set of problems for David. Amnon has rapes his sister Tamar, you might remember. Absalom kills Amnon for raping his sister. A real mess. Third problem he has is with Absalom's coup, his coup d'etat, trying to take over the nation. He steals the hearts of the people, and David ends up being exiled from his king, his, his, his throne. This is an amazing, you know, I mean, an amazing chapter in David's life because he had gone from running from Saul to running in some sense, or at least being cornered by Ishbosheth and Abner. And now he's finally gotten through all of that, ascended to the throne. He's established his kingdom. He's expanded the borders. He's got everything going in his direction. And his son now tries to undermine him and wants his position. And he ends up losing to his own son. And that old picture, I showed this, I think, at Good Friday last year of Shimei throwing rocks at David, cursing him on the way out of town because he's walking barefoot through the Garden of Gethsemane and up the hill. I don't know if you remember that, but it's, it's a low point in David's life. Well, he goes through all that as part of the punishment that he had because of his murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba. And God says, okay, enough. We're going to take your usurper out. And so... The Bible says in 2 Samuel 18 that 
His son Absalom is hung up in a tree. Remember that? The thickets in the forest, it said, took out as many people as the battlements and the armor and the, and the weaponry of this battle. Nevertheless, Absalom is killed. And David mourns over him. And it's a terrible scene, actually. But Joab has to say to David, because he's so broken up over his son's death, his son who was the rebel, he says, listen, you love your dead son who's our enemy more than you love your people. And that's just a great exhortation from Joab to David, much like we saw in Ai and much like we saw when God is telling his people to get up and get back to work. And here he was, morning, morning, my son, my son, oh, Absalom, my son, son. And he says, get up, there's work to do. Get back here and do what you're supposed to do. And he says it through Joab, and he does. Lastly, he numbers the troops in the end of um, Samuel, Second Samuel 24. Now, we don't know the timing of this, and if you read First Chronicles 21, we're not sure where this fits in, and a lot of Bible scholars will put it earlier in the narrative. Nevertheless, it's tacked onto the end of the book as a reminder of God's discipline on David for being a man who, unfortunately, through ease and comfort and prosperity, had changed his values. Remember, David was the one who wrote psalms like this, Psalm 27, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He was the one who stood in the shadow of Goliath with a slingshot and said, I'm not afraid of you. I, I, I'm going to take you down because you're defying the God of Israel and I don't need armor to do it. And now at the end of his life, or at least at some point later in the establishment of his kingdom, he's busy trying to count the troops because he's not secure without a big standing army. And even his commander knew this was a bad decision and tried to talk him out of it. Nevertheless, he numbered the troops And then he ended up having to choose his punishment. God said, listen, I can turn you over to your enemies for a certain amount of time, or I can punish you directly for a certain amount of time. So you can get all these months and and what was the time frame? Three months of fleeing from your foes, and they shall pursue you. Or you can get three days of pestilence on your land. So consider what you want to do, decide, and let me know. And so he says, listen, I'd rather fall into your hands than the enemy's hands. And so God sends the plague upon the people, and thousands of people start to die from Dan to Beersheba, which is a phrase they use often in the Bible, from the highest part of his kingdom in the north, Dan. Remember, Dan had two segments of land all the way up north of the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to Beersheba, the far south as you can get in Israel, all the way to the the sea. He says um, people started dying. And as the angel was coming through, killing more people in Jerusalem, he stops at the threshing floor. Do you remember that? The threshing floor was at the top. If you remember the city of David, if you go to the citadel where his his home was, his palace, above that, they pitched the tent for the Ark of the Covenant, and beyond that was the threshing floor. A threshing floor is a place where you need to be at the top of a hill where the wind can come up, and as you throw the the grain up in the air, the wheat up in the air, you, you separate the chaff from the wheat. And so you've got this perched up place. Matter of fact, this picture is looking south toward the city of David. This is a northern shot pointing south as the city of David cascades down. Matter of fact, you can't even really see the city of David unless you're up near the edge of the threshing floor, Aruna's threshing floor. Oh, to give you a picture, I gave you a picture. If now we're looking north, if you look up, you can see the city of David, also called Zion, the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And you've got the Kidron Valley, going down the Gishon Spring. It's just where the Hezekiah, Hezekiah made a tunnel. We'll talk about that next time. And if you keep climbing up the hill, you get to the top spot. That became a showdown where God, in grace, 
lets David end this pestilence by his crying of repentance there, and he ends up buying that threshing floor from Aruna, and because of that, he says, this is the place that we're going to set up shop for worship. It ends up being where his son builds the temple, a beautiful spot with a great view. And if you've been there, now, unfortunately, there's a you know, third most holy spot for Islam sitting on the top of the Rock Mosque. But one day there will be a third temple there. And it's a beautiful perched place. I mean, there are mountains higher, like the Mount of Olives right across the way, but it's, it's uh, where the breeze sweeps through. And uh, one day there'll be a third temple there. Nevertheless, that's where the threshing floor stops. That's where the temple will one day be rebuilt and where it was built by his son. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for this quick run through through First and Second Samuel. I pray it ties a lot of stories together in a short amount of time, giving us a sense of context and a framework for this particular section of, uh, of Scripture. These years of David's ascendancy and his reign a flawed man that he was and a sinful man. And in some way, he's giving us hope that you can take people that are far less than perfect. And yet, because of his soft heart toward you when confronted with sin, as we read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and passages where his his heart went out to you because of the guilt that he had, because of the pressure of your spirit upon him, because of the accountability of men like Nathan, he was willing to confess his sins. And you took that broken and contrite heart as a sacrifice to you, and you used him in great ways. So God, we know that no one's without sin, as it says in 1 John. If we say we're without sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sins, you're faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a man or a woman after God's own heart that's willing to admit before you their sin. And God, I pray we'd be much more like that, that you might use us in spite of our weaknesses to be the prince and princess, if you will, doing what we do, even as it says in Colossians 3, working for you, seeing you as our boss, doing whatever we're called to do in a, in a sense as co-regents of what you want to see done in our workplace, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our sphere of influence and ministry in the church. So God, I pray you'd create much more of that in our hearts. David is a good example in that regard, and we know the scripture was written in many ways and for many reasons, but one reason is to give us those good examples to follow. So God, we're thankful so much for the way you glorified yourself in him. Glorify yourself in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.